The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. If you want to turn to John chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, verses 29 through 34 for us this morning. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Hey, good morning. My name is Oshua. I'm one of the teaching pastors, and I am so happy to be back with you guys. Um, Last week, Andrew Zellers shared the the prayer request for my daughter, Abigail. Um, We're very thankful for your prayers, and she is home. Uh, Got home Wednesday evening uh, with no infection and um, eating fairly normally. Um, So we're really thankful for that. Um, And then this morning, they were going to be here, and then they got in the car and tried to start it, and the battery was dead. So... So we're hoping that you you guys are able to see her uh, next week. Um, So we're going to continue in John's Gospel. I'd encourage you guys uh, to turn there in your Bibles uh, if you haven't already. Um, And I'm going to pray, and and let's get going. Lord Jesus, we invite you to be present with us uh, this morning. Please help me uh, to, uh, to teach from your word. Thank you that you, uh, you are with your people. You do heal. You do sustain us. Um, and thank you for community, for this family of God that we get to be here with, whether we are, we are uh, being here for the first time or, or have been here and a part of this family for years, God. Would you help us to, uh, to grow in deeper community with one another and with you? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Gospel of John. It's a work of persuasive writing, okay? So it's a, right, a gospel. It's telling the story of Jesus. It's not trying to be unbiased journalism, right? Just sharing the facts. That's usually how we like to think of like news and history, right? It's, it's just an activity of being objective and unbiased, just reporting the facts. Because, right, history is grounded in what actually happened, Journalism is supposed to be, we're just simply reporting what happened, right? In fact, some news outlets will will talk about how they are fair and balanced and how everything, we're just kind of reporting it to you and you're going to try to figure out yourself what you think of it. 
Um, but, right, the very fact that, that the news has to advertise how fair they are is because we assume that they're not. Because, right, life is not a laboratory. We don't put on our lab coats and kind of stand back objectively trying to discern truth, trying to figure out what is true and what is not. And maybe you've heard the concept that the history books are written by, by who? By the winners, right? So from whose perspective are we studying the Vietnam War or the dropping of the atomic bomb? <laughs> and even from these examples, I, we can realize and think about that history, when it's done well, we learn lessons from it, right? We actually not just learn what did happen, but, but what should happen because we have to learn from our mistakes. We have to think through, hey, how do we not repeat the same vicious cycle? And to do news well, right, the journalist has to show you why it's important. Why should you care about the news that you're hearing? News that we pay attention to affects us or something we care about, right? I'm, we're reading the review of a new Apple device. Is it worth getting, right? We're, we're learning about the, the new law that was passed by, by the government, right? Is it going to have some credit that we can tap into? Is it going to raise our taxes? Is there a new law that we have to uh, think about? Or when there's the runaway serial killer, we really care which neighborhood he's in, right? We're paying attention to things that affect us personally. So as we read this gospel of John, it, the, the author is not trying to be objective or indifferent to the news that he's reporting. In fact, he's going to make claims about Jesus that if they're true, they have deep and lasting ramifications for our lives, right? And he's not going to be just this reporter. He's more like a defense attorney, where, where the world has put Jesus up on trial, and John is going to be calling witnesses, and each of these witnesses are going to testify to Jesus, right? So the world puts Jesus up, and he says, okay, he, he is irrelevant. Or it says, Jesus is only the creation of religious dogma. Or he can't be the only way to God. Or he's only a good moral teacher, but he cannot be God in the flesh, or his teaching on things like gender and sexuality are outdated and closed-minded. Or his death as a sacrifice for sin is offensive. Right? There's just a few of the ways the world and our culture puts Jesus on trial and seeks to judge him. And so John, as we read this gospel, he's going to call these different witnesses. We're going to see the defense witnesses that are going to testify to these power trans, powerful transformative experiences that they've had with Jesus. And then there's going to be the, the prosecution's witnesses. They're going to, going to be people, they, these, uh, they'll tend to be these religious leaders or these skeptics that are, going to, that are going to try to incriminate Jesus. But then the clearest testimony that we'll see is when Jesus takes the stand and he speaks for himself and he testifies about who he is. And no one is neutral. Now, either, right, they've been really offended by Jesus and they're, they're challenged and threatened by his claims, or they've been totally transformed by him and, and they want to share that news with the world. So, I want to invite us, as we're reading this gospel, to listen to these testimonies. And in a way, 
we're going to kind of sit in the, the jury seat, right? We're going to listen to this testimony for and against Jesus. And we kind of, I think if we're honest, we like that seat, being in the jury box, right? It feels safe. It feels like we can be those neutral observers, right? Judging the world around us as though we have no personal interest to its outcome. But, right, if we're honest, we're not neutral because the result of this trial, the result of the question of who is Jesus, actually really deeply affects us. And whatever verdict you decide for, of who is this Jesus, someone you can just ignore and forget, or someone that that has the authority and the power in your, your life to reset all your trajectories, to transform your moral universe. Whatever decision you make, it's gonna radically change everything. Or better yet, it's not gonna make you a different person, it's gonna make you you in a new and better way. And so, John, the author of our gospel, calls his first witness in this chapter. And we've heard it for uh, the last couple weeks, right? It's John the Baptist. Same name, different guy. It's kind of like if you're an Andrew in our church, right? You just got to start going by your last name. It's what we do. Uh, John's another one of those, right? Just, okay, Baptist and apostle, right? We just, you just go by the last name. So the Baptist, or not to be confused with the modern-day Baptist, the baptizer, um, is this witness, right? And he's, uh, John is calling him uh, to the stand. And then we see this, this contrasting witness. And it's this other group, and these are the, like the prosecuting attorneys. They're the Jewish priests and the Levites. Okay, so they're going to come up to John, and they're going to ask him. And this is basically what we, we heard uh, last week and this week uh, in the, the reading of the test. They're going to ask him, like, what are you doing giving this ceremonial washing to people? Notice it's the priests. I, I actually, when I was prepping this, I just put in Pharisees. I'm like used to the Pharisees, right? The religious like legalists and law teachers being the one that Jesus goes toe-to-toe to, right? Notice it's not them, right? It's the priests and Levites. These were the guys that were in charge of ceremonial washings for the Jewish nation, right? They're the ones that make you like right with God and wash you clean and, and introduce you to the, the place of worship. And they're like, whoa, whoa, John, you don't get to do this. You don't have the right family line. You don't have the religious credentials. Sorry, why are you doing these washings? That's our job. And so they come and they challenge him. And they, they're like, why, why, why would you do this to the Jewish people? Why would you do it to our own people? As though they need to re-enter into a, a, a washing and a cleansing for transformation. We, are, we got our act together. We, we have it all. Everything's already set up. We have our religious system. We don't need this new thing that you're doing. And so, in John's main message, right, what we already read was, he's like, I'm just the opening act. I'm just warming up the crowd Right? The star of the show is going to show up, and I'm getting things ready for him. And that's what we see here, starting in verse 29. Okay? So our outline this morning, we're going to see in this text, is what John testifies about Jesus, how this was revealed to John, and then finally, how can we for ourselves authenticate this testimony today? Right? What John testified, how it was revealed to him, how he knew it was true, And then finally, how do we know that it's true? How do we authenticate it today 
for ourselves. So here's first what Jesus, what John testifies about Jesus. And we see here right in the beginning that he says, right, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John tells us that Jesus existed before him. And this is a veiled reference to his deity, right? Jesus has been around longer than any of us. And because of that, he gets to call the shots. And then he's going to go in. And actually, this chapter has more titles of Jesus, of who he is, than any other chapter in the whole Bible. Okay, he's, going to, he's just going to list off these titles. Now, if you've been in a church a long time, I think we're used to letting church culture define our, our like religious terms. And then we fill it with all of our teaching we've already heard, and then we just skim over it, assuming that we totally understand what these words mean. And this is, there's a lot of this kind of religious language. And if you're outside the church and you, you're just visiting, you're just like, what are these people talking about? I have no idea. Well, you know, if, if that's you, you probably know a little better than some of us inside because we don't know that we don't know, <laughs> Right? So just some of the the titles he used. He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Spirit, he descended like a dove on him. Jesus comes, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, he is the the Son of God. Or actually, I I think a better reading is in the the footnote of the ESV, or I think it's in the, the newer NIV, is that he's the chosen one. Right? These are all these religious terms that we kind of just skim over. Like, ah, I know what that means. But what we have to do is step out of our modern kind of religious context and try to get into the, the context of the first hearers, the people that would have heard this originally. And they were steeped in the biblical context, in the, in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, far more than we are today. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key into the prophecy that, that John, he identified with, right? He says, I am the one preparing the way. And that's what Andrew Zellers preached on last week. Right? He's preparing the way for Jesus. That comes from the prophet Isaiah. And so every one of these titles finds its context and its meaning, not in our present-day religious, oh yeah, I know that word, right? but back into the prophet Isaiah. And so it's really good. I, I, I was going to do some slides, but I, I think it's really good for us to open our Bibles, especially our Hebrew Bibles, the first like almost 80% of this thing, and, and look at it ourselves. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. To open Isaiah, which is almost kind of in the middle, right? Um, We'll start in Isaiah 40 to see this passage that John is referencing. And we're just going to spend about five five or ten minutes in here to see the depth of this meaning. Now, this uh, this prophet, he wrote about probably 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay, and the, the connections between the life of Jesus and the words of Isaiah are just uncanny. Like, it is just, it, it is a powerful testimony to the truth of the claims of Jesus, of how these prophecies spoke to him. And so, so look at Isaiah 40, um, verse 3. This is the, the one that, that John the Baptist references in, our, in our, our, our chapter in John. He just says this, he says, He's a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Man, Jesus has to come to Portland. 
all our potholes. We could really, uh, <laughs> we, we need some help um, with that. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the first piece is that, that John comes and he's preparing the way. He's clearing all the mountains and the potholes so that the Messiah can come and we're gonna, it says, see his glory. And if you remember earlier in the, the Gospel of John, it's, it says that, that Jesus pitched his tent among us, right? He tabernacled among us. The very glory of God took on flesh. And this happens in the Gospels where people see these little glimpses. They're just like, he's just a normal-looking Joe Schmo guy. And then he does something, and he says something, and he speaks into a person's heart and life. And they're never the same. And they get a glimpse of glory. And they say, wow, who is this guy? Then jump ahead to Isaiah 61. In verse starting in verse 1. Now here's these references. Most of these are going to talk about the Spirit descending on God's chosen one. Look at this. Uh, in, in 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the text that Jesus read in Luke 4 when he begins his ministry, right? He goes back into his hometown. He enters into the synagogue, the place where the, 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 the Jewish people would read the scriptures. And he opens this scroll. He reads these verses and says, today this has been fulfilled. And then you see it in his life, right? He's taking the brokenhearted. He's taking the, 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 the prisoner who's imprisoned in, in, in shame and fear and guilt and, and sickness, and he sets people free. But there's also this, you notice, he also brings the day of the vengeance of our God, and he brings comfort to those who mourn. Not, not everyone's innocent, right? In the, <laughs> And in many ways, no one is innocent but Jesus. But there's this sense of where there are some who are broken that need comfort, and there are others that are proud that need to be brought low. And you see that in that, that first time he reads this verse. All the people are celebrating. They're like, yeah, come rescue us from the, the wicked Romans and our, religious, or our, our governmental oppressors. And then he starts quoting these verses about how it was the Gentiles uh, who were welcomed in first into the kingdom. And they freak out and they go from praising Jesus to trying to throw him off a cliff. And so he cuts at the ethnocentrism. He cuts at ethnic and racial pride. He does and says things that totally like blow away and heal and comfort and also offend and tick people off. <laughs> I love that about Jesus. It's amazing. Okay, two more. Isaiah 42. Again in verse 1, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully, faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Right? He's that chosen one in whom God delights. He is filled with the Spirit. Right? The, the, the power that Jesus exercises in his life isn't primarily because he's tapping into his divinity, but because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's gentle and weak. That's when he speaks about that a bruised reed he will not break. He's saying there's this gentleness to Jesus, that he is this Lamb of God, and now there's interesting images, right? And I, like in our, our, our church culture, we're like immediately, oh, we go to the cross. We know what that's about, right? It is true. That is what it's about. But there's another image that, that was uh, in the Jewish kind of, um, uh, you could try to say like end times literature of that day. And you read it in the book of Revelation where the picture of a lamb is the one who is sacrificed but also one who is just this gnarly warrior, that this lamb that rises up and comes and battles uh, against the oppressors of his people. And so you have this image of this, this lamb who's gentle with the weak and strong with the wicked and the proud. And then look at chapter 44. Here in our, our text it says that Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. He gives the Spirit. Listen to this in, in uh, 44 verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jesron, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Wow. There's this, this pouring out of the spirit. And then jump ahead to verse 5 where it says, One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob uh, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, the name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. That God's people, in this baptism of the Spirit, will find this new name. They will find their identity as, as being a member of the people of God, as being connected to the Messiah. There's this identity here. And this, this we don't have time to jump into this baptism of the Spirit. But it's, it's something that if you're in a, a more conservative background, you just kind of ignore it or, or explain it away. And, and there will tend to be in more of a charismatic Pentecostal uh, background where you just define it in a certain way, right? The baptism of the Spirit always looks like this, and it has to fit into this mold. And, and we see here that it's something for all of God's people but I believe it doesn't fit into a mold, not like the ignored conservative mold or even so much the just more some of the, the crazy Pentecostal mold, that there is something to a, a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit that we need to rediscover. But that's a totally different conversation that we hope to get into later. And then finally, here's the last one we'll look at. And that's all right here in this middle section of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 53. And here we're going to see this image of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And perhaps you know these verses. Let's, let's look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for this generation, his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You could go through here and see these prophecies and then open your gospels and see one by one these things fulfilled. That Jesus, he died this horrible, shocking death. That he forgave his enemies on the cross. He was rejected by those closest to him. And he's the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And and The text doesn't say us in John's gospel, but John the Baptist probably expected the warrior lamb, right? That comes and literally takes away sin by destroying it, by destroying people. But as we read John's gospel, we, we see that it was actually first the gentle lamb that comes and gives his life as sacrifice first. Now, that's that betrayal. That's that, that vision of Jesus that we see that John is proclaiming. Go, go back to, to John chapter 1. I want us to see next how this was revealed to John. How did he see this? How did he know this? And to illustrate it, I want to talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Anyone know the Dunning-Kruger effect? So, it's a a theory in psychology that documents the connection between human ignorance and self-confidence. Okay? Spoiler alert, ignorance and self-confidence usually come in pairs. Okay? The original research in this field was inspired by a man named MacArthur Wheeler. Anyone know this guy? He was featured in the 1996 World Almanac as one of the world's stupidest criminals. Okay? A year earlier, this dude literally was so stupid, he inspired a bunch of psychologists to research human stupidity. Okay? So, a year earlier, this dude committed armed robbery, okay, of two banks in Pittsburgh in broad daylight, and didn't wear a mask, right? So later that evening, they broadcast the surveillance footage on the, like, the 9 o'clock news or whatever. He was identified, and the police showed up at his house that night, right, to arrest him. And he's, he's just protested, right? He's just like, no, I'm innocent. What are you talking about? I didn't do this. They said, hey, listen, man, we see your face, right? It was on the cameras, you are positively identified as the man who robbed these two banks. And the dude was legitimately, totally surprised. And he kept saying, but I wore the juice. I wore the juice. Okay. Okay, now get this. MacArthur Wheeler wasn't just any bank robber, right? He had done his research. He knew that the secret ingredient of invisible ink was lemon juice. (laughs) Really, it's true, right? 
He had done his research. So he had smeared lemon juice all over his face, convinced that it would make his face blurry to the video cameras and to people that saw him. Right? He thought he could disappear with lemon juice. Now, no, no, okay, wait, wait, don't give him a hard time. To his credit, he had tested his theory. This is, this is true, this is true. So he had taken a, a Polaroid camera and taken a selfie of himself after he had smeared himself with lemon juice. And the picture came out blurry. So, so he proved his theory. Yep, it works. The juice works. So I'm going to go rob these banks. So apparently he was as bad a photographer as he was a bank robber. Because just because you take a blurry photo of something doesn't mean that every photo is actually going to be blurry. So here's the thing. MacArthur Wheeler wasn't just an idiot. That's, I mean, that's a bunch of stupid people out there, right? The crazy thing is that he was a total idiot while also thinking that he was a genius. Right? So... The story inspired these psychology professors to, to research the question. When people are wrong or incompetent, do they know that they're incompetent? Or are they pretty oblivious to that fact? Right, so it was done with a bunch of uh, college participants and then some other uh, areas. But the, the test that they, they did compared three topics. It used English grammar, logic, and humor. And basically, this is what they found. That across the board, the most... Uh, incompetent 10% of people were convinced that they were more competent than two-thirds of their peers, right? So they would take this test, and then they would ask them, how well do you think you did compared to your peers? So the most incompetent 10% people were convinced they were in the top third of the group. And those who were most competent were far more accurate in their self-assessment, except they actually overestimated the competence of others. They didn't take into account how stupid people could really be. So the conclusion of this research is basically this. In order to know how good you are at something requires the same skills that are necessary to be good at that thing in the first place, right? So if you're absolutely no good at something, you actually lack the skills to realize that you're no good at it. Does that make sense? This totally explains my entire 20s of my life, right there. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm past that. So, what's, what's the point? Why did I tell that long story? In this text, we have two groups of characters, right? We have, we have the, the Levites and priests, and then we have John. And it says about these priests and Levites, John says to them, uh, in, in verse 26, he says, you know what? You, you don't even know Jesus. You didn't recognize him. He was among you, and you did not know it. These guys thought they had it all figured out. They thought they had, they had God in their box, in their religious system. They knew what the Messiah would look like, when he would come, and that they would recognize him when he came. They didn't know that they didn't know. And you see it two other times. In verse 31 and 33, John says about himself, I did not know him. I did not know him. I needed to have him revealed to me, right? His identity had been shaped around the scriptures. He also was looking for the Messiah, but he knows when he doesn't know. And because of that, he sees the truth. He's going to see Jesus for who he really is. 
So we should ask ourselves, when it comes to judging moral and spiritual truth, are we like the priests in this story who are totally ignorant, but we don't even know it? Or are we more like John, who knows enough to realize that his own knowledge, by, by that he cannot grasp the significance of who Jesus is? I think if we're honest, most of us don't know what we don't know. We think we are really good, objective observer, observers with expertise to know the difference, to determine spiritual and moral truth. Like, we really think we know the difference. But I don't think many of us are. I don't think it comes natural, in fact, to any of us. So how was the identity of Jesus revealed to John? We see in verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. And I have seen him and have borne witness that this is the Son of God or the Chosen of God. Right? We don't know what this looked like, okay? In any movie you've seen trying to depict this scene of the Holy Spirit falling on Jesus, like, no, it doesn't do it any justice. But it says that John believed, and then he saw. And some of you are like, well, yep, 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 that's me too. If I saw this, if I saw a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit, I would believe too. And until then, I'm going to go about living my life my own way, right? And here John is testifying to us, this is what I saw. Hear it and believe. Because here's the thing. All of us, every single one of us, believe the testimony of trustworthy people all the, team, all the time, right? We make decisions every day that we don't fact check. You, just, you simply cannot live your life skeptical of everything. Oh, I, I, can't, I can't drive down the road. I can't trust my seatbelt until I've fact checked. Like you, you, you don't fact check everything. We find trustworthy people and trustworthy things, right? And then and we, we can base our life on them. And on the other side, you read the Gospels, and you see again and again miracle stories, and you see people encountering Jesus, and they see these miracles, and they still don't believe, right? Seeing a miracle doesn't change your heart. If, if you're not submitted to God, if you're offended by the words of Jesus, seeing a miracle isn't going to take away that offense. It's just not. It really is, I think, more of a defense mechanism that we use. I, I have a, a, a friend who went to Bible college, who walked with Jesus, who was on staff at a church, and then he left his wife for another woman, denied Christ, and just became this ornery, just absolutely vehement, vocal atheist against everything Christian and every, anything having to do with Jesus. And, but he kept going back to science. He kept saying, if it was proven to me, if I could see it, I, I would believe it. Right? If I could see a miracle, then, yeah, then I would believe. But you got nothing, right? He's like, I searched Google. I couldn't find any. I'm like, okay. So, so I'm, I'm talking to this, uh, this gentleman, and, and, and we have a mutual friend from Bible college who, uh, who's, who's married now, and, and, and her husband literally had a, he had a, a cancerous brain tumor that he had operated and removed, and then it returned. 
and they were going to do a second operation to remove a cancerous brain tumor. And they, they went in to prep for the operation, and they took one last brain scan that they would use to base on uh, the, the brain surgery, and that last scan came out with no tumor. And as a Christian family, praying hardcore, their whole church praying, everyone praying for, for this tumor to just be removed. And I, I told my buddy, I'm like, dude, they have the brain scan. You can see it. Call her up. She'll, she'll text it to you. No, not interested. But like, like, if you want to find miracles, if you want to find the evidence, it is there. But at the end of the day, a miracle doesn't change our hearts. There's something else, right? And you see it in this text. There's something deeper than just this physical manifestation of the Spirit. And you see it in John, that he first, in verse 33, right? He didn't, he said, I didn't know him, but he says, but he said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't think John heard a voice from heaven say that to him. You know what I think that text is saying right there? I think he read the book of Isaiah. I think he read it and just said, the Messiah, the Spirit is going to fall on him. And so he's looking for the one who the Spirit falls on. He read it. He believed it before he saw it. Right? And through the eyes of faith, Jesus was then revealed to him. That's John's story. That's his testimony to us this morning. Bring it up to present day. How do we authenticate that testimony, that story for ourselves? How, how do we confirm it? How do we know that it is true? I think this is an important question, not just for those that are kind of standing on the outside looking in saying, who is this Jesus? Or on the edge saying, I'm unsure or doubting. I, I think it's relevant for all of us, right? Because the authenticating and confirming work of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time experience, right? It's not like we trust Jesus and then from then on out, we are 100% assured of our faith, right? We have all our doubts and questions gone. Is that true? It's not of me. No. When we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, it's a constant journey of faith where we have questions and doubts and then we take steps of faith relying on God's promise, and then we see his faithfulness confirmed in our hearts, and our faith grows. Or we choose sin rather than obedience, and our faith weakens, and our doubts grow. Right? It's this dynamic relationship. And so wherever we're at, however long we've been following Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to confirm that faith, that truth in our hearts. So, just kind of in, in closing, I want to share just a couple steps as we wrestle through that. How does this truth get authenticated in our, in our hearts? How do we know that the testimonies that we're going to hear in this gospel are true? So, first, if you're like me and you're a thinking type, right? You're more of a thinker than a feeler. You, you want to start on the intellectual side of things, right? You want to get a bunch of books and compare the arguments for and against God, right? Some of us, that, that's all well and good, okay? I love books, right? I'm reading all the time. But, that's, but, but, but here's the thing. Thanks, Mark. That was for you. But here's the thing. 
The biggest obstacle between us and Jesus is not our lack of information. It's our lack of transformation. Okay? The biggest obstacle between you and Jesus is not your lack of information. It's your lack of transformation. So I'm going to just assume that we all have tons of unanswered questions. And that's okay. Because by the way, we have no box to offer you where God sits inside. Right? Life is really complicated. And Jesus is not afraid of our hardest and most gnarly questions. Right? And stepping back and saying, I'm only going to take Jesus seriously when I have all my questions answered. Right? That's the same thing as saying, I will never believe. Or it's the same thing as saying, I'm going to smear a bunch of lemon juice all over my face and go rob a bank. Right? Because you step back and you say, I'm going to get this thing all figured out. I'm going to know that I know that I know. No, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. None of us have this thing figured out. But we love Jesus. He's alive. He's working in our lives. When I put my faith in Jesus, when I came and walked with him, I didn't have it all figured out. I didn't have all my, my questions answered. Right. Okay. So here's those steps, some suggestions for discovering if Jesus is who he says he is. Start by simply admitting that you don't have Jesus all figured out. And that apart from God making himself known, you can't know Jesus personally as he desires to be known. Right? You can't, by your own willpower, have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You can't make him show up and demonstrate his power to you. He alone is the initiator. That's the first thing. You've got to admit that. You're like, I can't get it. I don't know. You've got to admit that you don't know. Then, ask him. Ask him to make himself known. Ask him for the miracle of new spiritual and moral taste buds. That you can delight in Jesus and the things that are good. That you can taste and see that he is good. And then ask him to show you the truth about Jesus. And to wash you and make you clean by his spirit. To take away the things in you that are self-destructive and destructive to others and which are displeasing to him. Yeah, I, I, I think you can talk to God before you're sure that you believe in God. In fact, I think that's how we all start. And after you've done this, after you've done this, don't just sit around waiting for a sign from heaven. Well, I asked him to show up. And I'm just going to sit here until he does. No, no, no. Begin taking steps of faith. The path of following Jesus cannot be judged by the signpost, okay? You can't sit back in your jury box with your arms crossed and look at the sign and say, I know what that path is all about. I don't need that. No. This path is known through the walking. This Jesus is known through the trusting of him. I didn't have it all figured out. I was 16. I, I knew nothing. I had tons of questions. I just knew that this Jesus was true and that he said he loved me. He offered that gift of, of, of life and sacrifice to me. 
He loved me so much to give himself for me. How can I deny that? How can I say, yeah, I don't, I don't need that? No, like, if it's true, I'm going to take some steps down this path. I, I could, you could ask me how many questions you have, what's unknown, everything. But, but he says he loves me. He says if I follow him, he will, he will give me eternal life. I'm not going to just judge that from the outset. I'm going to take steps down this path. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus is on trial. And I started this message, right, saying, you know what, we like sitting in the jury box. And in a way, it's, it's true. We each have the responsibility for ourselves to make a decision about these testimonies, about these testimonies of Jesus. But here's the problem with the analogy. Here's where it breaks down, right? It's, it's, it makes it seem like we actually have the power to acquit or condemn Jesus, Right? Or, or that we are judge, right? And he's just on trial, um, kind of answering our questions. No, that, that's, that's not the case. Jesus is on trial, not because we want to question him and are the arbiters of truth, right? Jesus is on trial because he willingly put himself there and because he is the Lamb of God. He stands in our place, and in actuality, it's every one of us who must stand before God. And we have to give an account for every time we have broken God's law, not fully loved God, and not loved our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus willingly stands in our place, takes upon himself the just penalty for our breaking of God's moral law, and that's why he's on trial. And we see that in the Gospel of John. And here's what he does. He humbly comes to us and says, you be the judge. Right? He lets us judge him. He, says, he invites us, listen to the testimony. See my life. Hear my teaching. Come and follow me and you see for yourself that I am the Son of God, that I am the, the Savior of the world. It's amazing. I'm going to close with a conversation in John 6. Jesus gives a hard teaching um, about his sacrifice and his death. And hundreds of the people following him leave. I say, we, we can't handle this. We don't want anything to do with this. And then he turns to his disciples, to the 12. And he says, are you going to leave me too? And they just say this in chapter 6. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Every one of us has to come to the place and say, to say I have nowhere else to go. There's all these other voices. There's all these other options. I have all these questions, but I know you have eternal life. So I have believed, and as we believe and walk, we come to know. We don't have it all figured out, but he invites us to come as we are with all our gnarliness, with all our questions and our unknowns, and he will make himself known in the walking. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus. You invite us uh, to, to follow you, to walk 
with you to know you. And we just confess that. We have nowhere else to go. You are the only one with the words of eternal life. And we know from the Gospel of John that that's not just about some pie in the sky, but that's about a life lived now in light of eternity, a life infused and empowered by your Holy Spirit. God, no moral rules or laws or religion can change our hearts. No miracle, no, no logical argument, nothing uh, will make us new but your Spirit. And you speaking those words to each one of us, you inviting us in. So come, Holy Spirit, meet, meet each one of us this morning, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, we need you to come and, and whisper our names and speak your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.